If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 51. So we're going to be this morning. One of the things me and Casey joke about the last couple weeks is that I always get like really short readings. He gets long ones. Just so you know, it's all going to even itself out. I get 13 verses this week. Next week he gets seven. So it's all, it's all good. I'm doing some work, bro. Doing some work. All right. Fair enough. We'll keep track. So we've been doing a series, uh, if you are new here, the original playlist. And we've really, it's just been a summer of learning what it means to pray and trust and uh, walk with this God in the midst of all different circumstances of life. And that's what the Psalms were written about, to kind of train up this, these people to trust God. And so this morning we're in Psalm 51, and uh, I'll begin reading. Here's God's word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Here ends the reading. That's what I love about Nate. He's an overachiever. Went six verses past what he had to. I don't even think you knew that or not. Yeah, I cut it down to 13 verses. Nate always jokes with me because I always prepare, and I'm like, this could be like a five-part sermon series. And I say that with every sermon that I preach, and I always prepare way more than I can possibly fit in in 35, 40 minutes, and then have to cut it down. So yeah, I cut out those last six verses, so it was just the first 13. But you guys got the benefit of hearing more of Scripture read to you this morning, which is good. If you were here this morning, um, there was like utter chaos out here. Our kids were off the chart, off the handle, whatever you want to call it, running around. We're trying to have a little prayer circle, and I think we might have even been outnumbered by the children. And the Larsons and their four are even gone, so I can't even imagine what it would be like if all four of those kids were around there. And it's just complete chaos, and that's just kind of the age when you're in a younger church. You have children that age, they're just going to be a little bit wild. And I love the age that my kids are, even though this is probably some of the most challenging years. I love this age. And one of the things I love best about it is because they just give me great sermon illustrations. If you have children, just constantly, over and over and over again, they give me good sermon illustrations. If you notice, like, there's never a Sunday that passes by that I don't have a good illustration about my children. 
The only problem with that is you cannot use your children as sermon illustrations for very long. They get to an age point where all of a sudden dad's embarrassing them. Their kids, when they're sitting in service, are throwing illustrations back in their face about things they did at home, and you gotta just cut it off. So I have maybe three or four more years of good illustrations, and then my sermons are gonna be horrible. And I'm gonna have to work a lot harder to come up with sermon illustrations. But they're not there yet, so let me give you one sermon illustration with my, with my kids. Um, my, my boys, um, they're my two oldest, Weston's seven, Emmett is four, and they play really well together, but the only problem is sometimes they fight. I mean, they're brothers, and that's just gonna happen, especially when the seven-year-old dominates the four-year-old and he's gonna get upset. When I hear one of them cry, I have to do zero detective work to find out what happened, okay? Because this is how it always plays out. I walk into the room, if one of them is crying and the other one is in front of them and like caressing their face and be like, are you okay, are you okay? I know that it was like, he wasn't even involved or it was a complete accident. Zero detective work. If I come in and there's one kid crying and the other one is nowhere to be found, I know that it was an intentional and they hurt this other person, so I call out their voice. If they come out, then I know, okay, it, you know, he probably had it coming. He had it coming because he came out the first time and he's gonna tell me the story of why this, they had it coming. If it takes to like the third time I call out their name before they actually come out, I know that what he did was vengeful and sinful and it's gonna be more than just a talking to. There's gonna need to be discipline that happens. But what I find interesting is even from a young age, there is something that correlates with sin and hiding. There's something that just correlates there where when you know you've done something wrong like the thing I need to do is I need to hide if I if I just disappear behind my bed right here all this sin will just go away I won't have to deal with it even if dad comes into the room and calls out my name I don't have to deal with it you know that's what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned when the first sin in, of humanity they sin and God comes walking into the garden and calls out and Adam and Eve are nowhere to be found they hid they were afraid of God. And then they felt shame. They, they realized that they were naked and they feel the shame and they cover themselves with fig leaves. So we see early on that sin causes a few things. It cause, causes hiding. It causes fear. It causes shame. So we're going to be dealing with that a little bit this morning. Um, but Psalm 51, I mean, this really is what this psalm is all about. It's about confession. It's about repenting from the sin that David had done. And this is David writing again. And if you remember, last week we preached Psalm 34. And this, is, this was David that he was running away from Saul. And he had this whole episode where it seems like there was just a lot of Psalm and a, and a lot of Samuel that is written that is just David fleeing Saul. Well, this is David on the other end of that. David is in a good place. He's king of all Israel. He has no natural enemies um, within his own kingdom. They're all like out there and he's dominating all of them. He has everything that he wants, but yet he wants more. This Psalm 51 was written in response to probably David's darkest moments of his entire life. This is him um, sitting and going to a place that he probably didn't think was possible. And I'm gonna give you a little bit of that in a nutshell. In a time when kings were off at war, David stayed at home for some reason, and he is bored, and he's walking his palace roof, and he looks down, and he sees this woman named Bathsheba who's bathing, and she's beautiful, and he wants her. He sends servants who bring him up, and he takes her. 
he steals somebody else's wife and sleeps with her. And Uriah, her husband, he's not around because he's out fighting in the war where David should have been. So he calls him back, and David's plan is, is that I can just cover this up. If I just sweep this under the rug, I call Uriah back, and he can sleep with his wife, he can lay with her, and then when he finds out she's, she's pregnant, I left that part out, didn't I? She's pregnant, by the way. Shocker. This is a big soap opera now. Um, when he lays with her, he'll think, okay, I got her pregnant, and that's what's going to happen. But what he didn't count on is Uriah's a stand-up guy, and he will not go to his house and lay with his wife while the rest of his countrymen are out fighting in a war. It's a stand-up guy. So David is running through his mind. He's like, this, this sin is going to be exposed. What have I done? So he sends Uriah out on the front lines and tells the commander, just withdraw the army. Just withdraw when he gets on the front lines and just make sure that he dies. And that's what happens. Uriah dies. So David steals somebody else's wife. He gets her pregnant. And then he kills the husband in order to try to carry the, um, just cover this up. Let's just sweep it under the rug. God is not happy with, with David at this point, so he sends the prophet Nathan who comes to David and he tells them the story. And he says, you know, there's this guy that has, has a sheep and that's all he owns. He's such a poor man that all he has is this, this one sheep and he loves this sheep. He loves this sheep like it's his own daughter. But there's this rich man who has all the sheep that he could imagine and he had this out-of-town guest come in and instead of taking one of his own sheep, he went and stole the sheep that belonged to this poor man and sacrificed it so the other guests could meet. And David is irate. He's just flying off the handle and he says, you know what, bring this guy to me and I'll have him killed. And Nathan looks at him and says, David, you're the man. You're that man. And what David does in that moment, if you read 2 um, Samuel, you just, he just says, I have sinned against the Lord. That's like the short version of David's confession and repentance Psalm 51 is the long version of that. That's, that's him walking away from the situation and letting that just stew within his heart. In the letters, the words come out on paper. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. There's three words that David uses here um, that if you look through scripture, three words that, that sin is often described as. Sin, um, that was the easy one, right? and then iniquity and transgressions. Three different ways that, that sin is used, and David uses all of these within the first two verses um, of the Psalm 51. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to show like the, the depth of his sin. He's acknowledging his sin. You know, my transgressions, my iniquities, my sin. Um, David finally comes to a point where he's repenting. But I kind of wonder, like, have you ever wondered this? Like, what happens between the time that, that Uriah dies and the time that, that Nathan confronts him about this? What is David doing in his life at this point? Because 2 Samuel doesn't really describe, like, David's inner workings of what's happening here. If you had to read between the lines, I could guess that he probably does the same thing that we do when we sin, that we, we hide. We sweep it under the rug. We pretend like it's no big deal. But when David is convicted by Nathan... He can't do that anymore. There's, there's no more hiding. The sin has been exposed, and he has to deal with it at this moment. 
So David confesses. He says, I know my sin. I know my sin. It's like he's saying, I've been hiding it and pretending like it didn't happen, trying to move on, but I cannot. I know my sin, and it's always before me. It's always there. It just never goes away. No matter how hard I try to sweep this under the rug, this sin is always before me. And then he goes all the way back to his childhood and said, by the time I was conceived by my mother, I have been in sin just his whole life. He confesses and lays it all out before God. David confesses, and the only thing he does in this account, in 2 Samuel and in Psalm 51, is that he sinned against God. He admits, like, I have sinned against you, God. It's not like he, he didn't sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, but he's admitting that, God, before you, you only have I sinned because you have given me your law. I have disobeyed you. I have turned my back on you. I have run away from you. You're the only one who can forgive me. You're the only one who can make me clean, and I am running away from you. I've sinned against you. He's just confessing to God. Calling it like he sees it. His confession is a great start. But confession that doesn't lead to repentance, confession that doesn't lead to a changed life, doesn't mean anything. Could you imagine like if David just confesses all of this and then he just goes back and he's on the roof the next day and then takes another wife and goes through the whole thing all over again? I mean, that wouldn't really be a confession, would it? There's no uh, remorse within his own life. There's no feeling bad over his sin. There's no turning towards a changed life. Confession has to be followed with repentance. I feel like sometimes this is where the Catholic Church kind of gets it wrong, where, you know, they put so much. Confession is a huge deal. Don't get me wrong. But to just come in and, and confess your sins and then, well, you know what, just go out and say three Hail Marys, you know, maybe give a little bit of money to the church and you're good to go. And then, you know, next week you just show up and confess your sins all over again. Confession should lead to a changed life. That's kind of the goal of it, because that's what repentance is. Repentance is saying, okay, I identify that this, this is my sin. This is what I'm doing wrong. And it's, it's doing a 180 and turning the other direction and turning towards God again, saying, you know what? I need to hate this this before me, this sin that, that is, that is um, capturing me, capturing my attention, enslaving me. And I need to turn back to God and ask for forgiveness. It's doing a 180. That's what repentance is. Have you noticed that, that our world has a little bit different view of what repentance is? There's lots of religions. There's even in the secular world, there's, there's repentance. But oftentimes, repentance is looked at like it is a weakness. There's a romantic poet named Lord Byron who said this, the weak alone repent. The weak alone repent. Probably his most famous quote, the weak alone repent, which means, you know, if you are someone who needs to go and repent from what you've done, you, you are so weak. You are pathetic. I mean, you should be strong enough that, that you don't need to repent. Just, just own it up, pull up your bootstraps, get to work, you're good. Martin Luther had a little bit different view of repentance. When he nailed his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg, his first thesis was um, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of the believers should be repentance. The entire life of the believer should repentance, which means that like repentance doesn't just happen one time when you begin to follow Jesus. When you understand more and more about yourself and understand the depth of your sinfulness, your whole life is going to be repenting over your idols, over the things you're putting before God, even good things that you escalate above your relationship with God. You're constantly going to be repenting. But it's not a weakness, it's a strength. 
But I think back in my own life and, and some of the times that I've actually had to repent, man, that was the last thing I wanted to do in my life. I would rather just wallow in my sin and pretend like it doesn't exist, but to actually repent, to own your mistakes, to be able to stand up and say, you know what, I did wrong here. Not only against these people, but, but against God himself and forgive me for that. Confess your sin, but then turn from it. Don't wallow in your sin. Um, World Harvest Mission put out this excellent book years ago called The Gospel-Centered Life. Um, anybody ever read that? Oh, good. This might be new to us. You've probably seen this diagram uh, regardless. Um, but this idea is that you are, you're walking in your life, and it comes to a point of salvation where you kind of get to this, this V. And as you grow in Christ, your awareness of God's holiness just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Like when you start off, you're probably like... Um, yeah, God forgives, Jesus is my homeboy. You have this like very small picture of God. And then when you read scripture, you're realizing, man, God is way more holy than I thought. He is way bigger than I thought. He, he's way, um, he's much, I wanted to say gooder, um, but I'm not gonna say that. He's way better than I thought. And your picture of God continues to grow and grow. And while that is happening, simultaneously, you realize that I am a bigger sinner than I ever imagined. As you grow in your relationship, it's not that you're sinning more, you just become more and more aware of how sinful you actually are. I do this in my own life. You just become more and more, the, the more you walk with God and, and you read the scripture and you, you pray and you have communion and fellowship with God, the more and more you realize how holy he is and the more and more you realize how, what a sinner you are. So when you do this process, the cross kind of represents the gospel. The gospel needs to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger in your life to grow along with those two categories. If it doesn't, two things happen. You have self-justification and self-deception, which means that you either perform or you pretend. Like if, if the cross isn't getting bigger in your life, man, I, I got to get to work because I am realizing that I am much more sinful than I thought. I better be legalistic and moralistic and I gotta just try harder, try, 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 perform, 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 and then I don't try, um, I, I don't perform well enough and I realize that I'm still sinning and then I have to pretend, 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 sweep it under the rug, everything's gonna be okay. Just hide and we pretend. And there's something just awful inside of us when we have to pretend that we are better than we are, that, that we're more holy than we are. You know, one of the biggest arguments against Christianity is that we're a bunch of hypocrites, right? When we do this, I mean, we're just setting ourselves up to be hypocrites. This is the model for being a hypocrite. Just perform, perform, perform. And then when you don't do well, just pretend, pretend, pretend. The gospel needs to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger in our life so that when we are connected to Jesus, we get our energy, we get our strength, we get our wisdom, we get our perseverance. We draw that from him and him alone. David begins with this confession, but he's not just confessing. He's asking for a cleansing here. There's something that sin does w within us that, that leaves a mark, that leaves us stained, that leaves us feeling um, remorse. And David is asking for restoration. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold my willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And that's where we stop the reading. Just kidding, Nate. Um, sin is often accompanied by shame. We, you know, we saw that in the garden that we looked at that when Adam and Eve sinned that, that they hid themselves first of all, but then they covered themselves because they were ashamed of their nakedness. There, there was a certain thing that sin brought into their lives where it brought shame upon them and they put these, these fig leaves upon themselves to try to, to, to hide behind. Um, sin makes us conceal or hide our sins so that we don't feel that shame. Have you ever like gotten really dirty before? Like, um, has anybody ever done like the the mud run or anything like that? Madison, Madison is all about like, let's not just run. Let's try to do something fun while we run. Like, I don't. Angela would love the mud run. I would hate it because I'm OCD with that stuff, and I would have to like stop every hundred yards to wash myself clean because I, <laughs> I hate being dirty. It's true. If you know that about me. Um, when you come in from a mud run, um, I mean, you have, I've seen pictures before, I've never done it, but you are like caked in every crevice of your body with dirt. And I imagine there's a process of getting clean. You don't just all of a sudden come in from the mud run, hop into your car, and then just go home and sit around on your furniture and eat lunch and watch TV, right? There's, there's gotta be this cl- cleaning process that happens. If I'd imagine this is probably what it would look like if I ran a mud run that you would have to, you probably start with like getting hosed down. Like you don't even go in the house or near the house. You just stand there and hose off all the mud off your body. And then you take off all those dirty clothes and you leave them to the side. And then I would probably go wash my hands because if I clean myself and my hands are dirty, that's not going to work so well. And then I go take a shower and scrub myself clean and then put on clean clothes. If you, anybody, have you done the mud run before? And I'm stri- one person, okay. I was like, I'm striking out on my questions. That's the last question I ask. But so there's this process of becoming clean. But what do you do if the inside feels dirty? How do you clean the inside? If, if, if you've sinned in your life and you have this, this mark or this stain inside of you, or if you feel dirty, how do you clean the inside? I've heard it said like when, when a woman is raped that they will immediately go home and take a shower and just spend a long time in the shower and scrub herself so much that her skin almost comes off because of this dirty feeling that she has inside because of the sin that somebody else did on her. But that doesn't work, does it? You can't clean the inside by cleaning the outside. It's gotta be something else that happens there. David knows where to go to get clean. He confesses to God. And then look at David's confession. In verses 2 and 3, he describes his sin in the threefold manner as iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then he asks God to clean him in a threefold manner as well. Purge me. Clean me. Wash me. I mean, he's asking for the inside, for the Holy Spirit to just clean him from the inside out, to remove this sin from him and make him clean. And I want to focus on one of these three terms that might be a little less familiar, and that's in, in verse 7. David asked, purge me with hyssop. Um, when I think of the word purge, there was this movie out um, a few years ago called The Purge. That's like the first thing that comes to my mind. I've never seen the movie. I'm not endorsing this movie whatsoever. Look at me for a second. I am not endorsing this movie. Don't remove that from the tape, please. Um, but it's, it's about 
from what I gather from the commercials, it's, it's about this 12-hour period that this government sets up where you can go out and do any crime you want and there will be nothing that happens to you. It just makes um, crime legal for this 12-hour period. So if you're a good person, go lock yourself in a house and keep yourself safe from this. And the idea is, is that if we can just regulate crime to this 12-hour period, then the rest of the year will be good. We can purge ourselves of this crime and then maybe these criminals will attack and kill each other and we can just rid all of these these criminals, just purge them from society. Purge means to clear, um, no, that doesn't even sound right. It's to clear of something unclean or unwanted, to remove or eliminate. David is asking God to do this, just, just eradicate this sin from my life. Just take this sin that I have inside me and just, just pull it out, just get rid of it, Ma make it go away. Purge me. And he says, purge me with hyssop. Anybody know what hyssop is? I, I figured nobody was going to be able to answer that one, so I thought I'd strike out on one more question. Hyssop um, has been used as a holy herb. Um, it was used for consecrating in the holy places in Israel. It's kind of like a mint-like plant that grows in Europe and in the Middle East. It is also used for medical purposes. It helps stop infections from spreading. It was known for being by rubbed on people with diseases. You know, if you follow the, the Old Testament law, when someone had a disease, they would rub hyssop on them to make them clean so that they could re-enter society again. They could come back and part of Israel's family. But perhaps the best known use of hyssop was in the Passover. If you remember that, that Israel was, was living as slaves and treated harshly in Egypt and and God brings all these plagues upon Egypt. And the very last plague, before he releases his people for freedom, is he says, I want you to sacrifice a lamb. Just go get your, your best lamb. And then take some branches of hyssop and rub it on your doorpost. And then I will go over and I will, um, you will not be infected by, by this, um, oh, what's the word I was just using? Um, plague, thank you. You will not be infected by this plague, which was the, the death of their firstborn son in each family. So this, this wailing happens in all of Egypt because they lose their firstborn. But anybody in Israel that sacrificed this lamb and took these hyssop branches and rubbed it on their doorposts, they were, they were set free from this. They were rescued from this horrible plague. And, and David, no doubt, is familiar with the Passover, and he's petitioning for God to wash him in that kind of way. You know, he realizes that he just responded to Nathan of like, bring this man in and, and I will have him put to death. And then that man is, is him. So just pass over this if you could, Lord. Just clean me. Clean me with hyssop. Just put it over my doorpost so that, that I don't have to die for this. And then the other part of that same verse, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow. Snow white is an expression that means the whitest of whites, the cleanest that you could possibly be. The Bible uses colors um, quite often. It uses colors for sin as well. It uses um, black sometimes to refer to sin. But if, you've, um, if you know the worship song that says, sin has left a crimson stain, he's washed it white as snow, it shows this, this contrast of, of this crimson stain that sin has left, but God's cleansing of us is as white as snow. It's the whitest of whites. And that comes from Isaiah 118 that says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be, become like wool. 
Have you ever had, um, this probably isn't for um, younger people because maybe you only have an apartment at this point, but have you ever had like a vacuum cleaner salesman come in and do a demonstration of this high-end vacuum cleaner that sucks out dirt way better than your vacuum cleaner possibly can? Um, why am I asking so many questions this morning? Okay, a better example. Pretend like you walk into a big box store like Home Depot and they have this, this table set up with uh, as seen on TV and they have this cleaning solution there and they're showing you how this cleaning solution is better than anything possible that you could do. And they'll bring on something like, um, like red wine, right? You're not going to just deal with a little bit of dirt stain or something. It's got to get out the worst of stains. So they'll dump red wine on the carpet and then they'll use this cleaning solution and it will clean it perfectly, right? Just pull that whole stain out. Red wine should stain, but this, this has cleaned it up. This is kind of like what David is asking. When, when God cleanses us, he cleans us white as snow. It's almost as if that sin was never there to begin with because he cleans us so well. It's not like when my children brush their teeth. Okay, that's not clean at all. They don't get any of it off, but the way God cleans us and cleanses us from our sin is the whitest of whites. It's the cleanest of clean. That's in very, the very nature of God to clean in that kind of way. Now, if I was in David's shoes at this point, I know the sin that I've done, and I know that it's grievous, and I know the punishment I should get for this, but you got to give David, he's got a lot of gall to be able to come to God and say, you know, I'm confessing, clean me. Make me white as snow. Make me white as snow. If I was in his shoes, I'd be like, God, I've done something bad here. I mean, it's, it's real bad. I mean, it's, it's really bad. And I don't deserve it, but if you could just clean me, you know, maybe to like a light beige or something. I, I, I know that's asking a lot. How about just khaki? Just make, make me khaki. Oh, but David just shoots for the moon here, doesn't he? He said, make me white as snow. Clean me from the inside. Clean me as if I've never sinned. You know, we get this in Jesus. We get this in Jesus. When Jesus comes, he goes to the cross and he takes on all of our sin and gives us his righteousness. When God looks on us, he doesn't see us as, as this scarlet, stained, rebellious sinner any longer. He sees us as righteous because of Jesus he sees us as if we've never sinned because of Jesus. That's called the great exchange. Jesus taking on what we deserved and giving us what we don't deserve. Taking on our dirt, our sin, and cleaning us, making us white as snow. Sin has a tendency to make us feel shame, so we hide and we pretend but the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful to forgive and to cleanse us. If you're feeling like the weight of a particular sin, I mean, I know what the tendency is. I do it myself. It's going to be to hide sweep it under the rug, pretend like it doesn't, pretend like it's no big deal. But if you really want to be made clean, if you want to be right with God and be reconciled to him in this relationship, you've got to start with confession. You've got to be bold 
go to God, confess your sin, because he alone has a power and mercy to wash you white as snow. For my last point, I want to bring us back to verse 1. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. And I love this because David has just been convicted of a sin by Nathan, and, and maybe he's already done a little bit of repentance here already. Maybe he's already turned a little bit. Maybe he's trying to make restoration for what he's done. Maybe he, he's trying to live a good life, and he doesn't go to God and say, God, you know what? I feel real bad for what I've done. I'm, I'm doing a good job now. Uh, look, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm getting my stuff together, so, so clean me. Forgive me. He appeals to God, not on his own goodness, but on God's goodness. This is completely on God's shoulders. The, the steadfast love that he's appealing to from here is actually the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed is God's unfailing love towards us. Hesed says that even though we might fail, that even though we might rebel against God, that God is always faithful. No matter what, no matter how we fail, no matter how we turn our backs on God, God is always there and he is always faithful. He will always deliver on his process because he is Hesed. He has a steadfast, unfailing, never giving up kind of love. That's Hesed. That's the God we can go to to repent. His love never fails. Sometimes becoming a parent makes you understand this a little bit better because I know that like my children, they sin all the time. They're horrible little creatures, just kidding. Um, It's just kind of the very nature to rebel against their parents, but I can't imagine anything that they could possibly do that would make me turn my back on them. But let's just say, for instance, they did something so horrible against Angelo and myself that, that I had to turn my back on my own children. If they came back to me, and wanted to repent and ask for forgiveness, I would always turn around and open my arms to them because I love them. And God has this hesed love for us, this unfailing love that no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you think your crimes are against God, no matter how badly you think your sin goes, he has this unfailing love. And if you confess and repent, he will always forgive. I love that picture about God because there was a time in my life that I felt like my sin was so deep that I didn't deserve forgiveness and that I couldn't earn forgiveness, which is true. I couldn't earn it. But his faithfulness forgives. His love is unfailing. David appeals to God's faithfulness when his faithfulness has failed, but God's faithfulness and love never fails. You know, we, we see this in Jesus as well. I mean, this is the promise that we, we have in Christ. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't come to me when we were, were doing good. He didn't come to us when we said, oh, looks like you guys got your stuff together, so I'm going to come in and save you now. While we were sinners, while we were living in rebellion, turning our back on God, living for ourselves, God sent his son Jesus, who died for us and took on our punishment. It's amazing, isn't it? In a world that says, what have you done for me lately? God looks at us and says, you've done nothing for me, but because of who I am, I'm going to rescue you anyways. And he sends his son who rescues us. You didn't earn my grace, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. 
I kind of want to end um, on a different kind of note. I feel like as a church, if, if we are to look at Psalm 51 and look at it as a psalm of repentance and confession and turning away from our sin and turning back towards God, that one of the first things we do, like probably the biggest application thing we could do is just be transparent in our lives. Um, I mean, God knows everything anyways. I don't even know why we try to hide our sin from God. It's not like he's surprised by that when we pull something out from under the rug and go, hey, God, sorry I was hiding this on you. It's like, oh, I would have never noticed that rug was incredible. He doesn't do that, right? We can't hide our sin from God. So there should be a transparency between God of just doing things like David did, of just pleading with him, telling him what you're going through. Um, sometimes David was even mad at God, and he just said, you know, God, I'm mad at you right now. I don't know what you're doing here. Where are you? To just be honest with God. And there's a transparency that, that happens within that of, of us just opening ourselves up to, to shame. Bruce Walke, who um, was one of my seminary professors, um, who was also probably one of the greatest theologians of our generation, and I'm not saying that just because he was from my seminary. He said, when he's speaking of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, instead of feeling like gods, Adam and Eve feel shame. Instead of feeling like gods, Adam and Eve felt shame. I mean, that was, Satan goes in and he tries to tell them, you know what, God doesn't have good things planned for you. If you want good things to happen for you, you need to capture this. You will become like God if you sin. And they expect this going in, that if they sin, they will become like God. And instead of becoming like God, they become shameful. Shame replaces that. Being transparent and confessing that removes that shame. But at the same time, somehow it opens us up to the possibility of receiving more shame from others. I would just tell you, if, if you're someone who's here this morning and you don't have like one person in your life that you can talk to, that you can just be absolutely crushingly honest with them, um, that you can say, you know what, if you see something about me, I want you to speak into my life. If you see something I'm doing wrong, you need to call me out. If you don't have somebody like that in your life, find somebody like that immediately. I'm hoping that, that we can be a, a church that is so transparent with each other that we have multiple people we do that with, not just one person. But because sin causes shame, we want to hide that. But we're, we want to do the opposite of that. Just be transparent. Confess it. Open it up, even if it causes more shame with, in people's hands that might not know how to use it. Becky Larson, who's uber-gifted in encouragement and, and note-writing, um, sent me her, her daily devotion and said, I was just thinking about you this week, had no idea that it was going to be helpful for the sermon. But uh, somebody named Brenny Brown wrote, if we are going to find our way out of shame and back to each other, vulnerability is the path and courage is the light. If we're going to find our way out of shame and back to each other, vulnerability is the path and courage is the light. We need to be brave in our confession. Just open up ourselves and be vulnerable and, and realize that, you know, I'm, I'm sharing this information with somebody else and, and this could come back and hit me in the face. I've had that happen before. One time when I was a young adult pastor, I, I um, confessed sin in front of the group. One person came up to me afterwards and said, dude, I really needed to hear that. You know, sometimes we look at our leaders and we think of you as perfect and, and that just gave me confidence to confess my own sin. Next day, somebody else came up to me and said, I'm leaving your ministry. I can't follow a leader who, who sins in that kind of way. 
when you confess, there's this, this opening up of yourself that could allow yourself to be crushed. But you're never going to become like Jesus if you hide it and conceal it and pretend like you're somebody on the outside, that you're not on the inside. Confession and repentance removes that. And we can have boldness and confidence to do that in Christ. I'm going to end with this. One of the reasons that we can be bold in our confession, that we can take courage in that, is, is we have the example of Jesus. We have the example of Jesus. I, I love the, um, the story that Jesus is telling about the prodigal son. And it's about this, this young man who has a rich father who's a patriarch. And, and he goes away. He asks for his inheritance. And he goes away and he just squanders it. He's just living in sin. And he just blows it on sinful things. I mean, he's, he's, he's doing rotten things. And he has this moment where he spent all his money and he's feeding these pigs and he realizes that, that the servants back at his father's estate are eating better um, than he is. He's realizing that these pigs are eating better than he is. So he has this epiphany and he said, I, I need to return to my father and I need to repent. I need to tell him in all the ways that I've sinned. And he begins to walk back to his father and he's reciting exactly what he's going to say. He's like, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And, he, and he's going through this process of verbalizing what he's going to say to his father and hope that his father would just make him a servant. That's all he wants. And it's when his father sees him coming. He just takes off running. He's looking for his son, and he takes off running. And what you need to know, uh, a patriarch did not run. That was shameful. You know, a, a, a boy, a little girl could run, but a patriarch did not run. This would have brought him, um, this would have humbled him, would have brought him shame within his community to run like that. So he had to like hike up his clothes to be able to run like that, exposing his legs, which would have brought him more shame, because he, but he doesn't care because his son is repenting and coming home. And I love this picture because what you have in this picture is, is Jesus telling you the heart of God. He's telling you his heart. You know, if you come to me with your sin and you're repenting and confessing, I'm going to run to you and I'm going to embrace you. He's not even going to let you finish your confession and give you that love because his love never fails. His love never fails. But in the real story, I mean, this is a parable of Jesus. In the real story, God doesn't come to us when we're running back to him. God comes to us when we're in the mud, when we're in the muck, when we're with the pigs, when we're rebelling against God. And in the midst of our sin, while we're sinners, Christ comes for us. And he takes the shame of sin upon himself, even though he was righteous. He takes that shame so it should give us boldness to be able to do that. Listen to these words from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since, sin, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because Jesus endured the shame for us, we can have the confidence and boldness to be able to confess our own sin, to be exposed to that shame because he came and he took our place. That's the God. Unfailing love, his steadfast love. He loves us and will always embrace us. Let's pray.
Father, we, we come before you and we confess that, that oftentimes we rebel. Oftentimes we try to play God in our own life. Oftentimes we run ahead of you and try to make things happen on our own. Often we elevate things above you that, that shouldn't go to that place. Father, but we come to you and we confess that we do this. Father, I, I pray for us as, as a church that, that we might be convicted of our sin, that we might grow in our knowledge of our own sinfulness, but not be content to wallow in that. That we might feel remorse and hate our sin so that we might be more like you. Give us the boldness and courage to confess, not just to you, but to each other as well. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.